Hello, everyone. I'm Brent Leonard, and welcome to the Lupus Ontario podcast. We have quite the conversation in store for you today. Dr. Konstantinos Celios joins us to talk about lupus from the physician perspective. Dr. Celios is currently an assistant professor with the Division of Rheumatology, Department of Medicine at McMaster University in Hamilton. His research focuses on systemic autoimmunity, particularly systemic lupus erythematosus. Dr. Celios was awarded the Jeff Carr Fellowship by Lupus Ontario in 2014 and 2017, during which time he worked alongside Dr. Murray Urowitz at the Toronto Western Hospital Lupus Clinic. Dr. Celios, welcome to the podcast. Nice to find you, Brent, and thank you so much for having me, and thank you to Lupus Ontario for all the support, all the, the love they surrounded me all these years. It's an absolute so pleasure to have you. I'll give you my pleasure. The pleasure is all mine. I'll give you a brief, a brief introduction about me and how I ended up looking after lupus patients and taking care of lupus patients. Everything started in 2008. Again, you, you can call it like luck, but good luck for sure. I was in the... Um, in a big academic hospital in Greece, Thessaloniki, Greece, this is like the second biggest city in Greece. And there was a small lupus clinic with 150 patients at that time. And the doctor who was taking care of these patients decided to move. And there was nobody else to look after patients with lupus and to give me a, a, a motivation for that. They promised me a, a PhD right in lupus and I thought okay I will uh, look after lupus patients I will do my PhD this is something that can be uh, important for for quick doctors and I took over the clinic the lupus clinic I started seeing these patients taking care of these patients and I fell in love with with these patients with the disease I know it sounds like absurd but after a few months in the clinic I was sure that I wouldn't like to do anything else in my career, right? And they started like digging deeper and deeper into this disease, into how the disease manifests, why one patient is different from the other, why one patient will come with, with joint issues and the other will come with, with kidney issues, why one patient will do very well and why the next will not do well. And as, as the time, uh, was going by, I met Dr. Urowitz. Dr. Urowitz is my mentor at the uh, Toronto Lopez Clinic. I met him in Portugal, I remember 2011, in the uh, European Lopez meeting. And I attended his lecture. He had an invited lecture at that time. I approached him after the lecture and I told him, uh, Dr. Urowitz, I want to come to you and work with you. When I was writing my thesis, my PhD thesis, I was reading uh, Dr. Yearwood's papers, right? He started doing this research in 1976. And I will say, uh, kidding, I was born in 76, right? <laughs> so Dr. Yearwood, Dr. Gladman, the deputy director, these were like, like semi-gods for me. And it was an honor to come to Toronto to work with them, to, to, to do research with them, to, uh, to have discussions with them about lupus. And, and all these things. And this is where Lupus Ontario comes in play. Like in 2014, they awarded me the Geoff Carr Fellowship. And that was my, my 
lifetime, once in a lifetime opportunity to come to Canada and, and make my dream come true, right? And then after that, everything fall in place, right? I met the, uh, the people in Lopez, Ontario, this support, I'm telling you, and this, uh, the, the, the lobby surrounding me is, is not, like, it's, it's not just words, it's, it's real. Like I felt it for me, I felt it for, for my family, and uh, like I'm grateful forever to these people. It's fascinating actually that you, you start off by saying you entered the field because of the love you had for the patients. And I think a lot of times when people think about doctors and medicine, and maybe it's kind of the Hollywood version of it, but they think of the distance that sometimes doctors have between patients and themselves for a whole number of reasons. But right. it's interesting that that can also be a motivator. So doctors can still have that and feel that for their patients and use it yeah. as a way to, to treat them. We, for, from, from the early years of medical school, we are taught about this patient-doctor relationship, right? And you will notice that the, the, the word patient comes first. It's a patient-doctor relationship and not a doctor-patient relationship. Right, it's a, it's a relationship of imbalance. There's genuine imbalance, right? The doctor knows more from the patient with, with this field, right? Not in general. So the doctor is responsible to, to give directions, not only to, to examine the patient, not only to diagnose what's happening, but also to give directions and sometimes directions for life and instructions for life. The, 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 there is an imbalance there, right? The, the patient is in pain, the patient is afraid, the patient is, the patient is in need. He or she needs you at the time to guide them into safety, right? What I'm trying to do, and uh, I, I don't know if it, like, it gets out to the patients like this, I'm not sitting on the back of my desk, right? Uh, I don't like it. I'm sitting next to my patients. So just, just to make them feel that we, we are in this together, okay? Particularly with lupus, it's a chronic disease. It will not go away, unfortunately, right? It will be here forever. And we'll try to fight it together, side by side. I'll be by your side, okay? I'll hold your hand and we'll go through this together. Uh, it, it, it's a difficult disease. It's a difficult disease. And the peculiarities of lupus, we are talking about young women. Right, women in the 20s in the looking after adult patients, not pediatric. Women in the 20s, 30s, 40s, they're still in the in the active years, in the reproductive years. It's not only the disease, it's not only the pain, it's not only the uh, the rashes, the um, the deformities or anything, the, the, the hair loss. It's about if they're going to be able to work. It's about if they're going to be able to have kids and families. Right, if they're going to be able to go to the uh, to, to, to vacations in Jamaica, they they dread off. Yes, because the sun is not friendly for them. Right, you have to, to talk for all this. You have to analyze all this. You have to see how you're going to make their lives as normal as possible. You, you mentioned a moment ago about the difficulty that lupus can present as. And I was wondering, before we kind of dive into what the patient journey is like when someone is referred to you, 
maybe if we take a step back just for a moment, could you kind of give an idea to people what lupus is? Is there a strict definition of it? I know there's many different areas that lupus can impact, right. but what is lupus? If somebody's diagnosed with that, what is kind of the definition of lupus? This is the most important question, actually, and I don't think that we have uh, answered this in, in great detail. If you read 100 papers for lupus, 99 papers begin with this statement. Lupus is a systemic autoimmune disease that affects virtually every organ of body of or system of the body. What this means? Systemic. Systemic means it's not localized, it's not in one organ, it may cause trouble to every single organ of the body. Like if you Google lupus and anything, this anything will come up that in some patient or patients uh, have been if, uh, affected in, in the course of lupus. Autoimmune means that it's an issue of the immune system, the immune system is a system of, of cells, of organs, of tissues that is uh, destined to protect you from infections, not only from infections, but from any invader and any bad thing that can happen in your body. For example, if you get COVID, your immune system, the talk of the, uh, for, for the last two years almost, your immune system is the one to protect you. The, your immune system will like, capture the virus, inactivate, neutralize the virus, clear the virus, and then you'll be feeling fine. The same will happen with the, uh, with the microbes, say pneumonia, or sinusitis, or urinary tract infection. Your immune system will take care of it in most cases. Even if you have an injury, your immune system will help heal uh, the wound. Right, so whatever happens, the immune system will react and will take care of things. What's happening in lupus and autoimmune disease in general, the immune system, for some reason we don't yet know, attacks itself. Well, it's supposed to protect you and identify only the intruders. In lupus, it attacks itself. Again, we don't know why this is happening. We have some theories, we have some ideas. Some of them are proven for some patients, some of them are not. But this is how, like what autoimmune, an autoimmune disease is. And then this like, affects everything. By saying everything, the most common manifestation of lupus is the, the musculoskeletal involvement. We're talking about joint pain. This happens in almost 90% of the patients. Right, primarily affects the joints of the hands, the small joints of the hands bilaterally, it comes with morning stiffness, comes with uh, swelling of the joints, with redness, with pain, with discomfort. The skin and mucosal surfaces like the mouth, this is observed like in 80-85% of the cases. Not only the male rash, everybody knows about this butterfly rash on the face, and this is what mainly uh, impacts my patient's quality of life because they don't like to go outside with this thing on their faces, right. right? Multiple other rashes and sometimes more severe and sometimes causing deformities, right? And then we're talking about kidney issues, heart issues, lung issues, brain involvement, 
virtually anything can be affected in the course of blood test. So when it comes to diagnosing lupus, obviously you have these other issues that you've just mentioned that kind of lead to the suspicion of lupus. And I suppose if there's the butterfly rash, that perhaps is a little bit more of an obvious tell than others. In terms of the diagnostic journey that a patient can go on, is it primarily blood work, a physical exam, uh, other diagnostic machines that might be involved? How does that kind of transpire in, in, in determining whether or not lupus is at play? Now, I, I, I will start by saying that for me now, it's, it's easy, right? And it's a no-brainer to diagnose a patient with lupus or not, but for most physicians out there, it's not. And it's not because of things we said before. Lepers, we, we call it the disease of a thousand faces. We call it the great masquerader. It may appear with, with joint issues only. It may appear with, uh, with skin issues. It may appear with, uh, with constitutional symptoms. By this, we mean uh, only fatigue, some headaches, some pains here and there. The issue with lepers, Brad, is that in most cases, it's, it's insidious. It's coming like slowly. It's coming slowly and there is, if you read some of the, uh, the, the relevant papers, you will see that the, the average time for getting the diagnosis is close to five years, right? So the patients start to have symptoms and then it takes a lot of time to get to the specialist or to get to the, the, the proper diagnosis. Why is this happening? I think because lupus is not we, we had a discussion with other like lupus specialists in, uh, in meetings and congresses. It, it doesn't seem to be like a clear cut disease. We have patients who come with kidney involvement, for example, and whom we can diagnose them right away in, in a few days. We have patients with this constitutional symptoms, with this fatigue, with the headaches, with the, uh, the, the and symptoms on and off for many years. And in some cases, the patients, these patients are coming to the doctor with, with, with no significant findings from the physical examination. They don't have any, any visible rash. They don't have any visible arthritis because the nature of lepers is this, this relapsing and remitting issue this is in, in the majority of patients, we're talking about 70 to 75% of these patients are relapsing and remitting. And sometimes these remissions are spontaneous. So symptoms may go away for a few weeks to months, and then they will come back again, and then they will go away. I understand there is some frustration from the side of the patients. Like for many of them, they burst into tears when I deliver the diagnosis that they have lupus. They feel relief because sometimes they tell me, it's, it, so it wasn't my head. Right. So they, they end up to, uh, to be considered, you know, like um, hypochondriac for some doctors. I'm, I'm sure you've heard this a lot. And there are some discussions in the, uh, in the support groups. No, they are not hypochondriacs, right? We know that it comes and goes. We know that the symptoms may uh, result spontaneously and they will come again later. So when they have a patient like this, now we have the tools, we have the tests, the blood tests. We're talking about blood tests. To make a diagnosis of lepers with a certainty of 97 to 98%, right? We have a set of criteria. 
this criteria, I mean like a set of signs and symptoms and findings from the blood test. This criteria are endorsed by both the American College of Rheumatology, this is what we follow here, and the European League Against Rheumatism. So it's a universal set of criteria for a secure, as secure as it can be for diagnosis of lepers. So we'll be based on that, on both what the patient says, what the patient reports, what the, uh, the, the blood test was. And of course, I'm telling you, I get from my experience now, I'm working with lepers patients for 13 years. Sometimes it's just a matter of time. So I will not dismiss a patient's concerns based on a negative test or a, uh, a symptom that may come and go. When it comes to a patient coming to you, so there's been a referral made, they come to you. When you have that first meeting with a patient, how much about the patient are you already aware of? Is the full medical history? And how much, I feel like this is a bit of a struggle that a lot of patients have when they go to see multiple doctors. How much of that history should they recap for you so that you're aware of it? And and they're not, I'm sure pa patients don't want to recall everything and feel like they're wasting your time. But at the same time, obviously, there's issues that they want to make sure you're aware of. So where's the balance there between how much a patient should recap for you versus how much you're really already aware of? That's a great question, Brent. That's a great question. And I don't have a, a good answer after, after all these years. Why? I'm aware of the, uh, of the patient's history to the degree that the family doctor or the referring physician has reported whatever they have reported on the uh, on the referral letter, right? So sometimes I get the very detailed letters reporting everything that happened for the last like two or three or five years. Sometimes I'm getting like two statements, two, two sentences. The patient has found, was found to have positive anti-nuclear antibodies. This is like the, the, the hallmark of lupus. 99% of lupus patients have this test. And they, they have chronic pain. Right, and then I have to talk to the patient to see what's happening, uh, what happened, why this patient was referred, because we, we never start from the, from the blood test, right? We start from the patient. I don't mind about the papers. I mind about how the, the patient felt. I will ask them, my, my strategy is to ask them from head to toe, if we had any trouble with, with neurological symptoms, if we had any trouble with the eyes, with the ears, with the mouth, with the, with the lungs, with the heart, with the joints, with the skin, with the kidneys, with everything. So I won't forget anything, right? Another strategy is to take it from the beginning, to take it from the day the patient felt sick, right? Okay, you came to me, you're, you're 25 years old, tell me when was the last time you remember yourself healthy, right? And then we'll take it from there. And we'll go, we'll move all the way to today to realize what happened. Why I'm doing this? Because the patient sometimes will complain for what bothers them the most at that time. Because this is, this is what affects the quality of life, right? That they have pain, for example, in, the, in both thumbs. And they will not pay attention to some trouble they had two years ago that indicated kidney involvement. Right? because it's not the, the, the pressing issue for the moment. I'm trying to be as comprehensive as possible. Is this adequate 
for a, a 30 to 45 minutes encounter. This is the how much time I have for a uh, for a first encounter. No, almost never. What I'm doing for this, my last my last words for the patients after the first encounter is to hand them my email address, right? And ask them, I am telling them, I know we have forgotten things, right? I know that when you go home, you will remember things and you will recollect what happened, what, what, what tests were done, what x-rays or MRIs were done, what some other doctors told you. You will remember this, it will pop up in your head. Send me an email and, and we will be in touch. It's impossible to cover everything in one encounter. From my experience, Brent, I've seen, I feel confident that I know what happened to the patient after three or four encounters. I know, I know it's strange. I know it, and you think like, okay, I went to the doctor and he doesn't know what I have. No, I know, I know what you have, like in, in a great extent, but I feel confident that I know you 100% after three or four. And because lupus is kind of this great masquerader, in times when there's other diseases kind of more prevalent in the world, and I'm thinking just at the moment of COVID-19, does that hinder a diagnosis? It also you have kind of the unknown effects of COVID-19 and there can be long haul effects and so on. Does that change the way you approach your diagnosis or do you continue it as kind of how you've described because you really do kind of build it from scratch and, and understand the symptomatology from beginning to end and, and therefore you have a comprehensive picture. So does anything like that kind of change the way you approach a, a patient in terms of what's going on in the world with different diseases? Definitely, definitely. We, we can't dispute that, right? Patients with lupus, unfortunately, are not immune other diseases are not immune to what's happening in society and, and the world. And uh, the truth of the matter is that patients with lupus and other autoimmune diseases are actually more, 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 more sensitive. They're predisposed to infections. And when it comes to COVID, for example, uh, I, I had the webinar with lupus Ontario back in the day. It has been shown that they're more likely to get the virus. They're more likely to be admitted to the hospital because of the virus more likely to be admitted to an ICU because of the virus and more likely, unfortunately, to, uh, to die from complications of the, uh, of the virus. And that's why we were so, 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 so positive for the, uh, for the vaccines, for lupus patients and for some of our patients even with the third dose. We can't ignore this. And we have seen with lupus that for the first like 10, 20 years of disease, you have to fight the disease itself. You have to fight disease activity. You have to fight what damage disease will cause to your, uh, to your body. And then after that time, we see that in most cases, we are fighting to correct the complications from 20 years of lupus or 25 years of lupus, plus the 25 years of, of treatment of medicines you're taking. And these medicines will cause some trouble uh, down the road. So it, it, it never ends. Like the care for patients with lupus, the, the, the support for patients with lupus, it never ends. It, and it's constantly different from one stage of the disease to the other. It's constant, constantly different. It's kind of a good segue actually into 
what I want to touch on next, and that's the research around lupus. And I was wondering if you could give us an idea of where that research stands today. Obviously, the, it's since the 70s and so on, expanded a fair bit, I presume. But does research now focus on the disease itself or just certain aspects of the disease? Is it more geared toward finding treatments? How does that all come together in research in current day? Right. I, I think that this is the most important thing to discuss, the, the research and how we'll utilize these findings from research to improve the, the lives of our patients. There is basic research. By basic research, I mean research in, in experimental models of the disease. We have multiple strains of absolutely cute mice that develop lupus spontaneously. When I say lupus, I mean this is affecting the kidneys, this is affecting the skin with the same antibodies we uh, detect in patients, in actual patients with lupus. These little guys develop these uh, antibodies when we, uh, we breed them. And many people, many research centers are doing this, particularly in the States. Right, and from these models, we have learned a lot about what is causing the disease, what goes wrong with the immune system. By knowing this, we were able to, to plan to form new treatments. Did all of them uh, make it to the market? No, actually. In lupus, actually, we only had one such treatment up until recently. It was approved in 2011 by the FDA and shortly after from uh, by, by Health Canada. And we have this in, in our choices, in our drug choices. Most recently, we had like a few months ago, we had a second drug, a second biologic drug, a second new generation drug based on these experimental studies to give you a, an idea of how resource intensive this is, we started talking about these molecules in early 80s, right, in animals. And we came up with the drug for lupus a few months ago. Wow. Right. It takes time. It takes years of research, of uh, preliminary research in animals, of uh, clinical research, the initial phases in, in patients, and then in more patients and then in um, other patients. Now, uh, some of, of the lupus and members probably know now that, that phase one, phase two, phase three trials, the phase three trials were completed of this drug were completed like two years ago, right? And they uh, received approval from the FDA earlier this year. And we expect Health Canada to approve this in December. So we'll have another drag another uh, another means of for, for health uh, for lupus patients so basic research is important right because this will derive the the, the tracks of the future then we have the clinical research the clinical research we mean clinical research whatever is done in patients with lupus right in humans not animals not experimental models we're talking about patients with lupus and where this research is going, this research is going, one, to the randomized control trials to see if the new drugs are working for lupus. In lupus, we were not 
so fortunate compared to other uh, autoimmune diseases like rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. We had, uh, if, if I'm not mistaken, 23 or 25 randomized controlled trials. This is the trial we used for a drug to get approval, right? That randomized controlled trial. 25, 23 or 25, I, I don't remember now, and, and I'm embarrassed because I, I published a meta-analysis for all this. And the main question of the meta-analysis is why we had like 25 trials in lupus and one, only one was positive, only one was successful, right? The other 24 were not successful. And as a result, these drugs were, not, were never approved for lupus, right? While all these drugs were positive, were successful for rheumatoid arthritis or psoriatic arthritis. What is happening in lupus is this, every patient is different. Even patients with, with skin disease, for example, may have this male rash, this butterfly rash, that will go away relatively easily. They may have something else called, called discoid lupus. Discoid lupus will not go away. It will be there. It may flare a bit, but it will be there forever, and it will cause a deformity, a chronic deformity. Others two diseases, two, two different manifestations of lupus the same? No, they are not the same. And we can't expect that the given drug will uh, take care of the, of the male rash and the discoid lupus in the same patient. It, it will not happen. Right. Right. And what we saw was that the, the drugs we were using up to now for, for these manifestations had a success rate of 40 to 45 percent and the new drugs had a success rate of 50 to 52 percent so the difference was not enough to justify governments payers stakeholders to to, to approve this drug because all these drugs are, are very expensive so the difference the, the benefit was not adequate for the stakeholders to approve this uh these drugs Anyway, now we will have a second drug. Okay, and we're very happy for this and, and hopefully we'll be able to help more people. The other part, the other part of research is to fine tune the, uh, the, the drugs we are using and to fine tune what we are doing for our patients now. So this, well, why is this important? The, the results of this, this research can be implemented in practice right away. What I have done, I'll give you an example for based on what I have done for, for this, and it, it's an ongoing project. Many of the uh, of lupus patients are using something called anti-malarials. Okay, I'm not giving you any commercial name, no trade name, no nothing. Don't worry. Anti-malarials are, are considered to be the, the cornerstone of patients with lupus, multiple beneficial effects. They take care of the, of the joint issues, of the skin issues, of the fatigue. Uh, they help with minimizing the, the risks for a, a thrombotic event, an atherosclerotic event. They will have a positive impact on your cholesterol or your triglycerides, on all these things. And eventually, these drugs have been linked to better survival in patients with lupus. So about 80% of the patients, 85% of the patients are using this uh, chronically for life. 
These drugs, we know that these drugs may cause damage to the eyes after many years of use, after like five or 10 years of use. But even, even these numbers are relevant because our patients are taking this forever. So based on this, we were sending this patient to the ophthalmologist, to the eye doctors, from time to time, every six to 12 months to check the eyes. And back in the day, the ophthalmologist would be the one to say, okay, stop it now, because it has caused trouble to your eyes. Uh, just to make it clear, our patients do not end up blind. Right. They will not feel anything. They will be perfectly able to read, drive, watch the favorite shows, right? But the ophthalmologist will say that, look, I'm seeing something here, let's stop. And that was the only precaution to give our patients. Now, I found that in, in, in rare cases, this drug is causing trouble to the heart as well because it's deposited, it goes there and stays there forever. Okay. And it causes trouble to the heart, to the degree of heart failure and deaths because of this. And we now know like how to, to monitor for this complication and what to do. And I think that we have already prevented uh, a deterioration of heart failure and deaths in our patients, right? This is an example. And would that be an example? How, how Sorry, we fine tune the treatment. Would that be an example too of perhaps a medication causing a flare or aggravating uh, systemic lupus or is that something completely separate that could transpire? No, that, that, that is separate. We have, the, there are medicines that can cause flares of lupus, yes, and drug-induced lupus, yes, we know this. Right, and we know how to treat this. I published a paper recently for, for steroids, for example, and we had the impression that steroids, a low dose of steroids is absolutely necessary for to prevent flares and paces, right? And there was a French study showing this, that if you stop the steroids uh, abruptly, you will have a greater risk of getting a flare in the next 12 months. What we have shown is that by reducing this very slowly and carefully, even for a very low level, from a very low level, you actually, these patients do significantly better in the long term. They do not flare more than patients who continue to take steroids. And the damage over time is actually less than uh, people who were taking steroids. Because like steroids is like this double-edged sword in our patients with lupus, it's a great drug. It gives us great comfort sometimes and great success in severe cases and not so severe cases, but we need to know how to handle this more efficiently, when to stop it, when to get rid of this in order to prevent irreversible damage. More knowledge is more power, I guess, in, in this situation for the physician and for the patient right. as well. We, we are struggling i i believe Brent, that every little bit helps every little bit like from the new drugs to how we'll uh, utilize and how we'll manage the old drugs and how what we'll do even for for non-drug approaches non-pharmaceutical approaches for lupus right because i'm seeing we have great we have made like great advances from the 70s but we are still behind like I'm, I'm like it saddens me to see this another study uh, 
I, I did with the University of Toronto was how the, the mortality of lupus patients evolved from 1971 up to 2013. I know, I know it sounds funny. What happened in 2013? Up until that time, I had data from the, uh, the general population of Ontario, right, to compare to lupus patients. And that's why we, we censored the data, the analysis in 2013. What, what happened is this, the, the mean, the average age lupus patient who died in the 70s was 42.2 years. I was shocked to find out about this. Like I remember the number 42.2 years, like the patients who were dying and half of patients with lupus were dying in the 70s. They were dying half in five years from diagnosis. And the average age was 42.2 years. Very young. So now I, I check this in the 70s and the 80s, 90s, 2000, and then 2010, right? To find that in 2010, the average age of, of people with lupus who died was 60, uh, 61 years. So we gained 20 years for our patients, but not, not, not enough, not, not satisfying to me at least. The average age, the, the life expectancy of a Canadian woman in the 2010s is close to 82 years. The average, right? The life expectancy. We will, will have deaths because of, of accidents or whatever, yes. But anyway, by average, on average, they will live like 82 years and our patients will live like 61 years. So we need to do something for this 21 years, right? We, we, we lack, we need to, every little bit helps. Even this, even that a, a study that will tell me that, look, you will need to stop the anti at some point. It's important because it may give them another three or four years. If, a, a little, little, little things like, okay, you're taking a low dose of prednisone and they will never stop it because I think that it, it will not cause you any trouble. And now we know how to stop it, to prevent damage. It may add another like one or two years. Right. Every little bit of research helps to prevent to prevent death and to, to improve quality of life. I, I'm a firm believer of this. Like quality of life, it's it's hugely important. Absolutely, it's 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 one thing to be alive and healthy. It's another thing to be alive and and dealing with an illness where you don't have that quality of life. In my preparation, actually, for our conversation today, I came across something else you've been working on more recently, and that is a biobank. And I was wondering if you could take a few moments before we kind of wrap up the conversation to expand a little bit on what the concept of the biobank is, how it might work, and what your hope is for the impact on lupus as a whole with the biobank. Thank you for this question, Brad. It's, it's my obsession for the last several months, I would say for, for, for more than six or seven months now, this is my obsession. What I'm planning to do here in McMaster, and before I start, I would like to state again that I'm grateful to Lepus Ontario for the generosity. Lepus Ontario stands behind this effort and they fund this effort, right? And actually the, the biobank, 
will be named the Lepus Ontario and Matheson by a bank. What, what happens with this? What, what, what uh, I have done up to now and what I'm planning to do for the future. The biobank is a collection a repository of samples of biologic fluids like blood, like, uh, like urine and DNA. The DNA bank will be separate because the collection of genetic material is more, uh, it's not as uh, simple. It requires a different consent for the patients. Of course, I'm happy to, uh, to talk to all these patients. And of course, I will inform them for the goals of the, of the biobank, right? So we'll be collecting blood, urine, and DNA. We'll be storing this in deep freezes and in minus 80 uh, Celsius. In minus 80 Celsius, this and the, the proteins and the, the, all the substances and the molecules of the blood and of the urine and the DNA will be maintained and preserved for, for decades in the future. Within the same effort within the same project, we have the collection of clinical data, of demographic data, of therapeutic data of the patients who will donate the blood samples, the urine samples to the biopack. So in lay words, we will have the DNA and the blood and the urine to see what happened in the patient's kidney, to see what happened to the patient's uh, blood at the time that the patient presented with the flare from the kidneys or from the joints or from the skin. And at that time, we will have information on what happened before, information on what happened after, because this will be longitudinal, right? We will keep collecting data every single time the patient is coming to the, uh, to the clinic. We will know what drugs the patient was taking and what drugs the patient took after that or what drugs the patient was taking before that. We will know how old was the patient, if the patient had any relatives with, uh, with lupus or any other diseases, if the patient was white or black or First Nation or from all races of the world, everybody is welcome to our clinic, right? And we will be able to, to connect this data even hopefully with genetic data and to say that patients in the future, to say that patients with these genes and this complication responded to that treatment or did not, or had this marker in the blood or not, or this marker in the urine or not. And this is why uh, they developed this complication or the other complication. The, the, the long-term goal, I, I, I dream of a mirror that the patient will come to me, Brent, and I'll be able to say with a blood test that look, your course, your future will be like this. And if your future looks good in lepers, I will not give you so much prednisone to cause you damage 10 or 20 years from now. If your future does not look so good, right? we need to form other strategies we need to, to treat you actively and aggressively from day one. I want you to be with me from day one. By this, I mean 
I am talking to my patients always about compliance to their medicines, to their appointments. I'm asking them like, okay, I understand that you are tired of taking drugs for all, your whole life. I understand that you're, you're 20 years old. You shouldn't be in a doctor's office. You shouldn't be in the hospital. No, it's not natural, right? I understand this. If you have any thoughts of, of stopping your drugs, like not taking, let me know. Let's discuss this. Let's sit down and discuss. If you have any trouble, any financial trouble, I have patients like this, right? And you can't afford your drugs. Talk to me. We'll try to find a solution. We'll try to find ways, other drugs, maybe generics to, to, uh, that are covered by the government, by the, the Ontario Disability uh, Program. We'll, we'll find ways, but talk to me first. So these patients they, who are destined to not do well will be treated more aggressively, more like proactively, right? And in a nutshell, I think that we'll be able at some point to provide tailored custom-made treatment to a given patient. Like you will need this and the next patient will need the other thing. And, we'll, and I'm, I'm telling you, like everybody says in the lowest community, not two patients are the same, right? And I think that this will be translated into, into the management of, of local spaces in the future. Maybe not me, maybe the next generation. But you know, this, I hope and I dream that this will be like a, uh, like a foundation for, for generations to come. The items you've touched on there, there's so much to unpack and so many different areas when you think about what we've just discussed before the biobank on how that can help facilitate treatment and research and diagnosis. And even just giving somebody what a future path might look like with the disease, that can go so far in bringing comfort and just removing the unknown that can cause a lot of anxiety and stress over the disease. And, and you can help someone plan life that way with it. I, I think I think it's important. This is how I would like to be treated as a patient. And if you ask many of my patients, actually, some of them will tell you that uh, sometimes I'm blunt. I would like them to know what the future holds for them. And of course, I would like them to know that uh, I'll be there and, and we'll fight together. But I want you to trust me. I want you to, 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 to make wise decisions. And I'll tell you exactly, uh, I'll never stop fighting for my patients, right? But I wanted to know that, you know, this will not go right if, if, if we don't collaborate, if we don't work together, this will not go right. Okay, and I'm telling them this, I'm, I'm, might be, I, I might not be the one, I might not be the one who they trust, right? But I want them to know for them, for the future, for the families, for the loved ones that look, this is what's going on, right? You may not trust me, go to somebody else, but do something for you. For you. I, I don't mind about me. I mind about the well-being of, of that patient who is not convinced that something is happening and we need to take action for this.
which circles back to kind of how we began in in the relationship that a doctor and a patient can have and and right. the bond that forms even if in medical school right. you're told not to let it form right to remember we say the patient of the related to relationship That's right. the order <laughs> matters yeah right well dr stelios i'd really like to thank you again for taking the time to speak with us today this has been a fascinating conversation and I feel like there's so much more we could go into. I'd love to talk again in the future about the biobank specifically and give it more time to flush out every aspect of it. Uh, there's just so, it's so fascinating. Absolutely. Brent, thank you for, for giving me the opportunity to, to, to say a few things from the perspective of the physician. I'm not aware of anything like this in the past. Like we're always, not always, for the last few years. We're discussing from the perspective of the patients, and that's, and that's great. And we have brought patients to the American College of Rheumatology Congress before COVID. Okay, now that we, we don't even go, we won't, won't even travel. But anyway, before COVID, we had the, the patient's perspective, right? And now we have the, the physician's perspective toward the patients, right? I think it's like it's, it's important for the patient to hear the physician's perspective. Uh, I would be more than happy to discuss again. Uh, I would like to ask some time only because now I got approval for the biobanking and the, the Lopez Clinic in McMaster uh, two weeks ago. And now we are in the process of, of hiring a research assistant to, uh, to help with all this. I think in a few months we'll have we'll, uh, we'll have the first samples stored into into the freezers, and I would like once again to thank Lepus Ontario for all the support for for the McMaster Lepus Clinic and the Biobank. We we are grateful here at McMaster. We are grateful to Lepus Ontario. Thank you so much again, and I look forward to touching base with you again in a few months' time or or six months' time, what have you, and uh, get more of your thoughts and perspective. Thank you very okay. much. Thank you, Brent. Thank you. Thank you for listening. We love hearing your comments and suggestions. Please write to us at podcast at lupusontario.org.